1: Alright, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible week. We are live on Amp, so if you're listening on our podcast feed or watching on YouTube, don't forget that Amp is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. Continuing our top 25 players of the last 25 years with number 13, 12, and 11 today. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to The Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, it may be the NBA offseason, but there is no shortage of events out there to attend from baseball games, which are increasingly hard to find on television to concerts and comedy shows. And the best way to get tickets to any of these is on GameTime, the fastest growing ticketing app in the United States. So for amazing last minute deals, on tickets to see your favorite baseball team, your favorite band, or your favorite comedian, download the GameTime app. Again, it's not just sports. August means huge summer concerts and comedy shows all across the country, and GameTime has you covered for tickets there. Download the GameTime app and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, download the GameTime app and enter code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S for $20 off. No matter where you live, get out and have some fun this week. Download the GameTime app. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Also, last but not least, again, for those of you guys who missed it, yesterday I did a preview of the FIBA World Cup. Talked a lot about Team USA but hit on some other teams as well. So if you missed that, don't forget to check that out in our feed. All right, let's continue right along with number 13, Steve Nash, the last remaining player on our list who never won an NBA championship in his career. He was three-time first-team All-NBA, seven-time All-NBA in total. He was the assistant champion in the league five times, and he won back-to-back regular season MVP awards in 2005 and 2006. The only other top 20 player other than Allen Iverson not to win an NBA championship on this list. I put his prime down from 2001 to 2012. Believe it or not, Steve Nash made an all-star team in 2012. Uh, In that span, he averaged 16 points, three rebounds, and nine assists on 61% true shooting. And then in the playoffs during that span, he averaged 18 points four rebounds, and 10 assists on 59% true shooting. He always went up a level as a scorer in the postseason, in large part because teams would try to force him to score by staying home off the ball. As a matter of fact, he had nine 30-point playoff games in his career, including a career-high 48 in a game against the Dallas Mavericks in 2005, which was higher than any regular season scoring total he ever had in his career. As for his claim to fame, I think Steve Nash will be remembered for two main things. First, he basically invented pace and space basketball. Um, The Suns played significantly faster than everyone else in the league, even if it's not necessarily fast compared to today's basketball. It was significantly faster than anyone else In the league at the time, and obviously we think of Steve Nash as this incredible passer, right? And we see that a lot in his pick and roll numbers, which we're going to get to in a little bit. But I thought Steve Nash's best trait as a pick and roll ball handler, or excuse me, as a point guard, I should say, was his willingness to throw the kick ahead pass. You know, we think of the, you know, the point god Chris Paul. As you know, a guy who strangles the pace of games—he'd get the rebounder, he'd get the inbound pass on the baseline. He'd slowly bring the ball up on the ball up the floor, get guys to their spots, and then run a pick and roll. Right. Well, Steve Nash was the exact opposite of that. He just any single time that they secured a defensive rebound or inbounded after a made basket. Steve immediately pushed the ball up the floor with pace, and if he saw anybody in a position to catch ahead of the floor, even if they weren't necessarily wide open, ready, standing for a shot or for a dunk, he'd throw it ahead. And there's a ton of value in kick-ahead passes. Not only do you eventually, on several occasions, catch the defense slipping and you do get a wide-open three or a dunk, but in addition to that, it keeps the defense unsettled from the start. So you can imagine, made basket, turnover, uh, uh, m- a missed shot, whatever it is, the defense is sprinting back in transition defense, right? But they're not actually back yet. Usually there's one guy at the basket, but there are guys that are trailing the play. Sometimes guys aren't matched up yet. And so when you throw a kick-ahead pass, let's say that Raja Bell's running the left wing and he's ahead of you know some of the guys, like he's ahead of four of the five defensive players, even though he's not going to be able to run right to the rim for a dunk because that fifth guy is back there, if I pitch it ahead to Rajah Bell, everyone on the defense turns. And when they turn, all of a sudden the other four guys have opportunities to fill lanes and get open behind. It's one of the best ways to keep the defense from getting set throw that kick-ahead pass. It's kind of a lost art in the NBA. The only guy really who... Uh, um you know, consistently does it as a point guard in this era, really, that I can think of as Lonzo Ball, and he's been injured for a while. It's something that uh, LeBron James has been very good at in his career, throwing kick-ahead passes when guys are up the floor. When you see opportunities to push the ball up the floor in transition ahead of defensive players, even if it doesn't necessarily immediately generate a shot, it usually gets and causes even more chaos in the defense, which which can create openings. Now, <clears throat> Uh, you'd see guys in situations like that too, specifically Raja Bell was gunning for jump shots in that particular situation. There's a real difference between, cause you know, I, I talked about Jason Kidd being the, the best fast break player of the early two thousands. Well, Steve Kidd kind of, excuse me, Steve Nash kind of took that mantle away from him. Right. But the way that the Suns played fast break basketball was actually very different from the way that the New Jersey Nets played fast break basketball. The New Jersey Nets were more athletic and they were constantly running to the rim, Right. Whereas the Suns in a lot of cases would run for jump shots. And as a matter of fact, they took more jump shots than anybody in the league over that span. Um, they led the leagues. They led the, the entire NBA in jump shots attempted three years in a row from 2005, 2006, and 2007. So when Steve Nash came, they immediately massively increased their pace. They hunted jump shots, including in transition. They played faster than everybody. That was kind of like, I think, the first thing that Steve Nash will get remembered for, kind of inventing pace and space basketball, particularly as it pertains to hunting jump shots. The second thing that I think Steve Nash will be remembered for is I think he was the most accurate shooter, of his particular era. So not only did he have four seasons in his career where he finished 50, 40, 90, meaning he shot at least 50% from the field, 40% from three and 90% from the free throw line. Uh, but he also was consistently at the very top of the league in field goal percentage on jump shots overall. So I'm going to read you guys some numbers. These, this is where Steve Nash finished relative to the entire NBA in field goal percentage on jump shots among players who attempted at least 500 jump shots during the season. So all high-volume jump shooters in field goal percentage. 2005, Steve Nash finished second in field goal percentage with at least 500 jump shots. 2006, fourth. 2007, third. 2008, first. 2009, first. 2010, second. 2011, fourth. And if you go through those lists, there's a bunch of random guys that ended up in in high spots on that list, because in any given season, a guy can get hot, feel good with his jump shot for 82 games and shoot a good percentage. But every single year, Steve Nash was at or near the top of that list. Um, and that was what it was like watching him. If you saw Steve Nash load up a jump shot and he had his feet set, like you just felt like that thing was going in. His archetype, he was bigger than you'd think. He was a legit six-foot-three. He was constantly in motion. He was very rarely just pounding the ball in one spot on the floor. Even when you watched him, obviously we talked about those kick-ahead passes that we were talking about, but every time he got rid of the basketball, he was always cutting and running through and moving. Every time he was... keeping a live dribble alive for 10, 15 dribbles at a time. He was moving. We all remember those plays where Steve Nash would dribble along the baseline and get underneath the basket, but instead of shooting because he'd see a, a rim protector chasing him, he would just dribble it all the way back. Sometimes he would just dribble in circles around the floor until somebody broke open and he'd hit them. And he always hit the guy when he broke open. He was by far the best pick-and-roll ball handler in the league during the mid-2000s. There were 14 players who ran at least 500 pick-and-rolls in 2005. Nash finished first at 1.12 points per possession. Gilbert Arenas was second at 1.02 points per possession. So he was literally a full tenth of a point per possession better than everybody else in the league in that particular season. 23 players ran at least 500 pick and rolls in 206. Nash finished first at 1.1 points per possession. He was first out of 25 guys in 2007, so first place three years in a row. Second place out of 26 players in 2008. Uh, Anybody want to guess who was second? Hito Turkoglu. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about Dwight Howard yesterday and how everyone remembers the Orlando Magic as being like a Dwight Howard post up team, but they were actually the biggest, the, the highest volume pick and roll team in the league in 2009 in particular. Uh, He was third, Nash was third out of 32 players to run at least 500 pick and rolls in efficiency in 2009, back to first out of 42 players in 2010, second out of 41 players in 2011, and first out of 35 players in 2012. So over an eight season span from 2005 to 2012, he was first place in the league in high-volume pick-and-roll efficiency five of those eight seasons, and he was top three in the other three seasons. So, easily the best pick-and-roll player of that era. He was also a good ISO player. He like to pick on bigs on switches. Uh, a lot of you guys might remember key moments in like a series against the Spurs or, or – uh, Uh, The Mavs were like he pulled Dirk Nowitzki out to the perimeter and just kind of toast him off the dribble for a layup. Or if he played too far off, he would hit a pull-up jump shot. Did similar things to Tim Duncan sometimes in switches. Uh, But it kind of reminded me of Chauncey Billups in that regard. Like was very heavy to the left hand. Like he went to the left about 70% of the time. And it was just a simple give and take. It's I'm either going to take this pull-up jump shot if you're too far or I'm going right by you if you are uh, up too close into my space. Um, one of the things that was kind of, kind of cool with Steve Nash too, is he always used his right hand. So like when he was on the right side, he'd go right hand, but if, when he would drive on his left hand, rather than left side, instead of like switching to his left hand and like shielding with his right arm, he'd kind of position his body between the rim protector and kind of extend way out in front of him and make like a low right-handed scoop shot off the glass. Lots of young guards in that time tried to copy that finish. Uh, Steve Nash's crowning achievement. He won back-to-back MVPs in 2005 and 2006, although unfortunately they lost in the conference finals both times. The biggest what-if of uh, Steve Nash's career, what if the 2007 series with the Spurs had gone differently? This is an interesting one because, first of all, the Suns lose this really tight game one, and there's this weird play where like, Steve Nash closes out on, on uh, Tony Parker on the right wing, and he bunks heads with him, and he gets this big gash along his nose. And it just will not stop bleeding. And he ended up actually having to sit on the bench during several pivotal offensive possessions at the end of that game. And they lost in a very, very close game. And so that's kind of the first what-if in that specific series. And then, as you guys know, the Suns go on to win two of the next three games, including winning Game 4 in San Antonio. And, unfortunately, in Game 5 at home, we have the brawl. The, uh, the the shove into the scorer's table, people leaving the benches. Amari Stoudemire, the second-best player on the Suns, gets suspended for the pivotal Game 5, and they end up losing Game 5. Actually, excuse me. The shove into the scorer's table happened during the Suns' big Game 4 win. Stoudemire had to sit out Game 5, and so the Suns ended up losing at home in a pivotal Game 5 with their second-best player, not able to play, and then they ended up losing in Game 6 in San Antonio. So, again, if you look at, like, what if Nash doesn't bust his nose open and what if Stoudemire doesn't get suspended for Game 5? Do the Suns win that series? I don't know, but they certainly have a much better chance, right? And do they beat the Jazz in the conference finals? Probably. They would have been favored. Do they beat the Cavs in the finals? Definitely. That Cavs team wasn't very good. So, I mean, we're talking about a game of inches here that kept Steve Nash away from potentially being a champion and us looking back at his career very, very
0: differently. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms
1: and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor – Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. It's something that I've always been a big believer in. When Usually when you try to take on a project that you don't know how to do, it ends up just being a bigger headache as you try to learn and then you end up making mistakes and it ends up just not being worth it. Not only can a professional get the job done more efficiently, but you're also supporting local businesses in your area. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience, combined with new digital tools to simplify the process. Angie makes completing home projects easy. Angie has cost guides to tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. The app is free and easy to use. We all know the difficulties that can come with home projects. Angie makes tackling your project as simple as possible from start to finish. Turn to Angie with confidence, even for major renovations or emergency repairs. Are you renting? Even renters can come to Angie for moving installations and cleaning. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. All right, number 12, Kawhi Leonard. Best player on a championship team in 2019. He was a role player on a championship team in 2014 with the Spurs. Three-time first-team All-NBA. Five-time All-NBA overall, seven-time All-Defense, and two-time Defensive Player of the Year. And he also led the league in steals in 2015. Uh, He also is a two-time NBA Finals MVP in 2014 and 2019, although I personally don't think he should have gotten the 2014 one. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I put his prime down as 2016 to the present. Everything before that, he was more of a role player. Really became a primary shot creator in 2016. Um... During that span, he averaged 25.7 rebounds and four assists on 61% true shooting. In the playoffs, always one of the best playoff performers of his era: 29 points, eight rebounds, and four assists on 63% true shooting. Kawhi's claim to fame, in my opinion, is he kind of carried the mantle of Kobe Bryant as like the next in his era, the best like like two way score. Like when it purely came down to getting a bucket for yourself or stopping the other team's best player from getting a bucket for himself, nobody in the league was better than Kawhi during his particular era. Now, obviously, the game of basketball is way more complicated than just those two situations, and that's why there are players that are better players than Kawhi in his era. I never thought Kawhi was the best player in the league because of those complications that I'm referring to. But when we simplify the game of basketball down to just those two things, nobody was better at it than Kawhi Leonard. His archetype, he was kind of like... The way I would just break down Kawhi Leonard to to someone who had never seen him before is I'd say he's kind of like a bigger, stronger, but more ground-bound version of Michael Jordan. He plays kind of like an old-school two-guard, a heavy diet of... Pull up jump shots in the mid range off the bounce and iso and pick and roll. And then just a ridiculous back to the basket game with super reliable fadeaway jump shots over both shoulders and all of that, like, um, you know, uh, footwork that you became accustomed to seeing from the best two guards in the league during the late 90s and the early 2000s. He does have more of a power style than some of those more athleticism-based two guards, right? Like Kobe and MJ were more rise and fire guys. They use their athleticism to get over the top of the defense. Kawhi Leonard was more of a power guy. He's winning ground battles. He's bumping you off of your base to get separation, generating generating that separation on the ground rather than in the air. Um, so that that, it, that kind of like gave him this unique quality where because he's so damn big and strong— he plays more of a 3-4 because of who who he can guard defensively, and then offensively kind of fills more of the role of like a two guard, right? And, you know, as we say all the time, like you, your position in basketball has more to do with who you can guard rather than what you can do offensively. And uh, that allowed Kawhi a ton of versatility that made him easy to build around on any team. For instance, like on a Toronto Raptors team, he can – play a smaller position next to Pascal Siakam and Serge Ibaka or Marcus Gasol, right? Because of what he's capable of defensively being able to slot up to twos. But then in a Clippers lineup, you can put him at power forward and it works. That's one of the unique kind of things that makes him, versatile. He has absolutely mastered shot making at the NBA level. This year with the Clippers, he's just peaking right now. 59% effective field goal percentage on catch and shoot jumpers, 56% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers, 46% on floaters, 60% on hooks. He's also made significant strides as a passer. I won't go too far into it because we did it in our player rankings, but He basically turned his biggest weakness as a basketball player, the ability to pass into something where now he's kind of on par with his peers. And that's allowed him to get well over a point per possession and pick and roll ISO and post-up situations. And he's turned into a legitimate top-tier shot creator in this league Kawhi's crowning achievement early in his career. He was a role player with the Spurs, a cog in an offensive system ran by better offensive players, more of a defensive focus, right? But then he became a star level shot creator with the Spurs in 2016. But unfortunately over the next three seasons, by virtue of some limitations on the roster and also some injuries, he, uh, uh never actually won a title with the Spurs. But finally in 2019, Masai Ujiri takes a big risk and trades for Kawhi Leonard. And he goes to the Raptors, and he finds himself in a perfect situation to hide his flaws and accentuate his strengths. He played along, alongside high-level passers like Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry, who could do more of the managing of the offense, so that didn't put that on Kawhi's plate. He had elite backline help to help weaponize Kawhi's point-of-attack defense, which can be so valuable. He got to be the tip of the spear which is kind of what you need for this archetype of player. When you're primarily a two-way scorer, a guy who gets buckets and gets stops, like you have to be surrounded by a certain type of player or players around you that can allow you to just be the tip of the spear, and that's what the Raptors, uh, Raptor, Raptors allowed him to do. Um and that you know, so he ends up being the closer for that Raptors team, pushes them over the top. It also helped that LeBron was out of the conference at that point and Kawhi wins his first legitimate finals MVP. So I want to talk about the finals MVPs for a second, not just Kawhi's because I think this applies to 2015 as well, but the 2014 and 2015 finals MVPs to me were great examples of like the media just box score watching and buying into like stupid narratives rather than paying attention to what a basketball team is doing. And there were two primary drivers of that. So like you see – Kawhi Leonard averaged 18 points per game in the NBA Finals because of just openings that were generated by better offensive players on his team. Or you see Andre Iguodala. uh, I think Iguodala averaged like 20 in the 2015 Finals, if I remember correctly. Same type of thing. Like Steph Curry's getting... Blitzed thirty feet from the basket, and Andre Iguodala is shooting wide open corner threes, and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, look at how valuable Andre Iguodala is! He's averaging twenty points a game." And then there was the whole regarding LeBron thing, which was completely ridiculous because LeBron just lit Kawhi on fire. In the 2014 finals, he averaged 28 points per game on 68% true shooting, 68% true shooting. Did very little to really truly bother LeBron James in that series, but it became the narrative, right? And then the Andre Godala series in 2015, same sort of thing. Everyone's like, he guarded LeBron, he held him to 40% shooting, but it's like literally Kevin Love and. In- Kyrie Irving were out they're guarding LeBron with five main groups with all eyes on him because he's playing with guy like JR Smith was really the only legitimate NBA starter playing alongside LeBron James in that finals because there was a lot of guys in that lineup that had to play because of injuries that probably wouldn't have cracked starting lineups elsewhere in the league and so it just was a, a silly narrative when the truth of the matter was is Steph Curry was far and away the best player on the Warriors, and he deserved to win finals MVP when his Warriors team won an NBA championship. And the same thing goes in 2014. These are some crazy stats for you. So Kawhi, in the 2014 playoff run, only ran 118 self-creation possessions. That's pick-and-rolls, isos, and post-ups. Only ran 118. Tony Parker ran 439 okay? Manu Ginobili ran 290. Tim Duncan himself, old Tim Duncan, ran 125, which is seven more than Kawhi Leonard. So like, like yeah, he averaged 18 points a game. Kawhi played extremely well in the finals. I'm not trying to undercut how well he played. He did star in his role, but he wasn't the best player on that team. It was either Tony Parker or Tim Duncan. And this is why I'm a big advocate of the uh, like getting rid of the finals MVP award and making it more of the championship MVP the award you give to the player who deserves the most credit for leading that team to an NBA championship. That way you can filter through the crap, right? That way you can look at it and be like, oh, Kawhi Leonard only averaged 13 points per game through the first three rounds of the playoffs, so maybe he's not the best player on the Spurs. It's probably Tony Parker or... Tim Duncan, who was awesome during that entire playoff run, and outscored Kawhi Leonard during that entire playoff run. It's just—it's so silly how that works because you end up zooming in on just this small sample size of games, and you have all these media reporters who can't look past the damn uh, box score long enough to, to to understand how that basketball team is operating. Like it's—I love Andre Guadala. He's a uh, a guy who played at the University of Arizona. The dude's a legend here in Tucson. I'm a big fan of him in general. I think he's one of the best perimeter defenders of this decade, one of the best role players of this decade. Huge Andre Guadalla fan. Giving him the 2015 Finals MVP is one of the most absurd mistakes the the media has ever made in the history of the NBA. Like, literally, the dude was shooting wide-open spot-up shots and catching wide-open dunks along the baseline because the Cavs were throwing the damn uh, kitchen sink at Steph Curry. It was completely absurd We have to reevaluate how we do this stuff. Tony Parker ran the offense for the Spurs in 2014. Kawhi was really, really good in his role and won five-game series. Not nearly as valuable as Tim Duncan or Tony Parker was to that team. It's ridiculous that they gave him a Finals MVP. But again, that's kind of a side tangent. Um, He very, very, very much deserved the 2019 Finals MVP. So, what's the biggest what-if of Kawhi Leonard's career? What if his knee had held up during the 2021 playoffs? Kawhi was hooping his ass off in that 2021 playoff run. For those of you guys who remember, he averaged 30 points, eight rebounds, and four assists on 68% true shooting, which is off the charts. He had a couple of ridiculous dunks. He had a dunk in the Jazz series where he right left, just went down and just dunked on everybody. He looked amazing, but then he partially tore his ACL and missed the rest of the playoffs. Paul George finishes off the one-seed Jazz. The one-seed Jazz finishes them off and then gets two games off the Suns in the conference finals without Kawhi. So you can imagine how much better that team potentially could have been in the conference finals and then potentially in an NBA final series against the Bucs had Kawhi Leonard stayed healthy. And if you start to look at it as three championships – with two legitimate finals MVPs, that's where, you know, Kawhi could have entered into some conversations like, "Hey, is he above Kevin Durant in this era?" you know? That's an interesting conversation there, but we didn't get to see that because once again, Kawhi Leonard got hurt, which has become a recurring theme towards the end of his career. Number 11, last guy for today, Kevin Garnett. First player to be drafted out of high school since 1975, the best player on a championship team in 2008. Now, Paul Pierce was cl- was close to KG on that team and was definitely the closer on that team in terms of shot making. And obviously, like in, in that, res- like that's different than the 2014 or 2015 finals MVPs. Like those were role players that stole finals MVPs from stars who deserved it, right? Like Tony Parker was, you know, like consensus, one of the top 10, 15 players in the league in those years. He was coming off A back-to-back second-team All-NBA selections, like it just—it's totally different than a role player, right? You know, Steph Curry was the MVP of the league in 2015; it was very clearly the best player. That those were different. Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett were at a very similar level, and they were both stars. So Paul Pierce winning the MVP Finals MVP in 2008 is not something that concerns me. And frankly, I thought he deserved it. But KG, I do think was the best player on that team in terms of overall winning impact. 4-time first team all NBA, 9-time all NBA overall, 2008 defensive player of the year, 12-time all defense team including 9-time first team all defense. He was the rebounding champion in the league 4 times and he was the MVP of the regular season in 2004. I put down his prime from 1997 to 2013. That's one hell of a long prime. That's 17 years. Guess what? He made an All-Star team in both of those seasons, in 1997 and 2013. Um, This extends to before our 1999 cutoff point, to be clear, but I I wanted to try to capture KG's whole career, and we're only talking about two years there. Uh, During the regular season in that span, he averaged 20 points, 11 rebounds, and four assists on 55% true shooting. In the playoffs, 19 points, 11 rebounds, and four assists on 52% true shooting. KG's claim to fame is I thought he was one of the very best defensive players of his era. It's hard to say. This era was just so stacked with defensive talent. Like, uh, most people will tell you is Ben Wallace was the best defender of this era. A lot of people will tell you it was Tim Duncan. A lot of people will tell you it was Kevin Garnett. They're all very different in the way they played too. Like Kevin Garnett was like much more of like a active, mobile defender that was kind of all over the floor, uh, got a lot of steals and things like that. Tim Duncan was more of like a traditional rim protector hanging back towards the rim. Ben Wallace was like a complete alien and didn't resemble anything else that we saw in basketball over that span, right? So they're all very different. It kind of depends who you ask. But those three guys were basically the best defenders of that era. The biggest debate of this era is whether or not Kevin Garnett or Dirk is the second best power forward of all time behind Tim Duncan. And I tend to, or second best power forward of that era, I should say, behind Tim Duncan. I tend to lean slightly towards Dirk, as you guys can probably tell from the list. His archetype, he had very similar frame to Anthony Davis, who's 6'11 with a 7'5 wingspan, just like a pterodactyl on defense, just all over passing lanes. Um, He was one of the best post players in the league in 2005. Out of 43 players to run at least 200 post-ups, Garnett ranked second out of 43 players with 1.02 points per possession. He was fifth out of 45 players in 2006, and then he was first out of 40 players in 2007. Just a super, super deadly post-up player. Very, very good mid-range jump shot. Um, those of you guys who remember Kevin Garnett, like there were two main jump shots that he was kind of famous for. It was just a really good hard jab step jump shot. He had a good release that was almost like back behind his head. So it was really difficult to contest. And then he had this turnaround fadeaway that he would take and, uh, primarily over his right shoulder, but like he would like kind of like go into his high hesitation and then he would do like this triple like shoulder shimmy before he would go into his fadeaway. And like every, every kid tried to uh, copy that in the post you'll just remember like you get into the high hesitation and then it was like a shimmy and then he'd either out of the shimmy he'd either go left or he'd go right but he was better shooting that little, like kind of turnaround around fadeaway over his right shoulder um also had a deadly accurate hook shot that he made about 60 percent of the time knocked down catch and shoot jumpers pretty well in the in that 15 to 20 foot range he was about 40 percent for the during the prime of his career which at the time was a legitimate pick and pop threat just a super valuable anchor for a basketball team on both ends of the floor. The ability to build around him defensively, and then he didn't really start to really operate and pick and roll as much until he got to the Celtics, but he did a lot of that there. Uh, just just a guy that kind of could fill so many holes for a basketball team, which is why he was so valuable in a winning concept. His crowning achievement, he was the best player on the 2008 Celtics when they won the championship. He was also third in MVP voting that year. Led the Celtics to a 16 a 66 and 16 record, averaged 18 and 13 with 2.7 blocks per game in the 2008 NBA Finals as the Celtics eliminated the Lakers in the 2008 Finals, and we got to hear Kevin Garnett yell out "Anything is possible!" at the top of his lungs in a rather iconic NBA moment. Biggest what if of Kevin Garnett's career: What if he didn't get hurt? We said this already in the Paul Pierce section, but what if he didn't get hurt in the 2009 season? Um, again, the the Celtics started 27 and two that year in their title defense, and if KG had stayed healthy, they probably win the title that year. They were better. They kicked the Lakers' ass in Game Six, and won by almost 40. Uh, we're kicking everyone's ass to start the season. They were the best team in the league, and their best player got hurt. And so it's interesting to think about how that could have gone because now you're looking at potentially a two-time best player on a championship team. All right, guys, that is all we have for today. We're going to be continuing next week with 10 through uh, ten through 6 and then 5 through 1 the following week. Um, I'm going to slow way down on these because we're just doing one player per day and we'll dive into a lot more of the individual stories in their careers. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys and I will see you on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend.